You're listening to the Village Church Podcast Show, episode 30. This is Josh Patterson. I'm joined by my co-host Matt Chandler and guest host JT English, pastor of the Village Church Institute. Today we're going to be talking about the Village Church Institute and our vision for theological education in the local church. As well, uh, a little bit later in the show, going to be joined by author and philosopher James K.A. Smith to talk about liturgy, habit, formation, and his new book, You Are What You Love. It's going to be a great show. It's going to be a great show. At the end, we will discuss uh, some questions that were submitted via Ask TVC, but want to just launch right in now and talk a little bit about the Institute here with JT before I, I, I toss it to you, but I, I want to, for years, the Village Church has had this desire to train men and women more theologically. Uh, and we had ideas and visions and hopes for all of these things and, and realized that we needed to resource our people in a way that we were not resourcing them. And uh, we talked with you about this idea a couple of years ago now. Uh, it's coming up on that anniversary. And, and you came in and we formed the Village Church Institute. And so I'd love for you to give a, a, a bit of a brief overview of what the Institute is, and then we can jump into a little bit more of the details. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, grateful to be here. I think back to that conversation a few years ago when we first talked about this at a Baltimore Orioles game about what it might look like to do theological education in the church, how we might shape and form people. Uh, I thank God for that conversation. Yeah. I thank God to be here. It's really, really a joy, one of the great joys of my life. Uh, as we as we started thinking about theological education and discipleship at the village when I first when I first got here and kind of was doing an assessment of of just where things were on the ground. Uh, I kind of began asking the question, well, I guess not really asking the question, I sensed we're, we're trying to do too much. It felt like it was this really, really broad, we're going to have a, a class on every little thing, regardless of how many people we're going to have there, because we want to equip uh, God's people here at the Village Church. Which was a good intention, Absolutely. right? A good intention I mean, yeah, the instinct, equip. yes, it, the instinct is right, and the instinct was was biblical to, to equip and disciple, but one of the first things we really did with the Institute is we kind of, we kind of scaled back, yeah, we, did. we didn't scale forward, we said... We need to ask the question, what exactly are we trying to teach people and why? What are the kind of outcomes that we're trying to produce in the disciples uh, that are here uh, at, at the village church? And so that was one of the first questions I asked. What are we trying to teach? We answered that question uh, saying we want to teach people the Bible. So we called that Christian story. We want to teach theology. We're going to teach Christian belief. Uh, but th- those things aren't separate from being shaped and formed into the image of Christ. What we're going to talk a little bit later with with uh, James K.A. Smith about his book and and what the Village Church Institute isn't is just an, the intellectual enterprise at the Village Church. So it's, not another, it's not a seminary. It's not a seminary, no. We're, I mean, certainly we're wanting to engage people with their minds. We're wanting to take captive every single thought to Christ, while at the same time, the, the whole point is is, is is orienting people to the kingdom of God, orienting them to the story of the world, of what God is doing in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and really shaping and forming their loves, reorienting them. As you think about um, where we are current state, uh, so we're, we, we just finished what is uh, kind of the, a big building block of the Institute is the training program. Actually, wh- why don't you talk about what falls under the Institute real quick, and then we can talk about the training program specifically. Yeah, that's a great question. So the Village Church Institute is is, is really, it's a department uh, yep. that includes several things. Uh, the Institute is kind of the, the, the big picture department. That includes most of our environments where we're doing equipping and training. So that would include something like a forum. We've now done three forums since we've been here. And man, for, for people at the Village, that doesn't require a lot of margin in life and time. We're talking about two hours 
twice a year where you can come and it's a topic that we're picking that we believe our people need to be thinking about this topic and need to be able to articulate things about this topic. So the first one we did was Sam Alberry, uh, Is God Anti-Gay? Man, was that just... It was incredible. Uh, it was forming for me. I mean, there's still lines from that forum and from those conversations that I just, I use regularly in, 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 the, in, the, in the men and women I'm discipling. Uh, and we also did one with Dr. Moore on uh, on kind of Christianity and politics, and most recently Eric Metaxas on on being pro-life and defending life in the local church. So a forum is something that's very, very simple. Those things fall under the Institute, but we also now are rolling out classes. Uh, Jen Wilkins on our staff, and she's doing a great job. We now have have really two semesters worth of classes, one in the fall, one in the one in the spring. Those will be 11 weeks long, and we're going to be doing things like, like church history. But the ones I'm most excited about are the men's and women's Bible classes. There's just no way we can shape and form people at the Village Church without really just introducing them to what's in the biblical text and to the God who's revealing yeah. himself there. So we're really excited about those classes that are going to be launching here in the fall. Uh, but then what, what I've really spent a, a huge bulk of my time on this past year has been the training. Training program. Our training program is a one-year, uh, really, I don't know how else to describe it, than a discipleship training program. We're requiring a lot of people uh, uh, to be a part of this. It's about a 36-week, um, one-year-long, if you will, discipleship training program. We're teaching theology. We're teaching the Bible. We're teaching Christian formation. You're doing Christian story, Christian belief, and Christian formation. That's, yeah, that's, that's kind the of the syllabus, right? Yeah, that's the. those are the buckets that we're always thinking in. We want people to know the story so they can see themselves as participants in the story and being ultimately shaped and formed into the image of Christ. And so here's just, this is kind of funny to me, thinking back a little over a year now, I presented this to our executive team about a year ago. I said, hey guys, here's what I think we need to do. Can we pray for 30 to 50 people to be a part of this? I mean, I just, honestly, I would have been ecstatic to have 30 or 40 people. Because <laughs> right. like, this is this was a big deal. It was like, a big deal. I didn't, I mean, I was asking a lot of people and and I had it set to when we got applications, they would all come to my email. Because again, I'm expecting 30 or 40 people. I think we had 459 applications, which I just want to pause there and thank God that he has built a people at the Village Church who are hungry for his yeah, word. Amen. I mean, it was just, inc- like I was just, I almost was in tears when I saw those applications coming in because I just praised God for, for gosh, people want, they want this. They yeah. want theology. They and want it, the Bible. It might be, it might be a good just kind of pause to talk about the reality that the if you if you raise the bar, yes. then then people tend to raise with that mm-hmm. bar. I think there's such a low expectation of what the lay guy can do in the seat in regards to understanding more the God of his salvation. And so uh, raising the bar, I, I just am fearful of pastors that would hear this and just go, oh, they're not going to be interested in that. Right. That's not what they need, especially pastors who are far more prone to um, liturgies, um, as we'll talk with uh, Dr. Smith here in a bit, that, that, that aren't as rooted and thought out as maybe they should be. So Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I heard a quote, I don't remember it exactly, if, uh, I guess it was a few weeks ago now, that one of the reasons we're losing people isn't because we're asking too much, but because we're not asking enough, right? So in evangelicalism, there's kind of this conversation of, of how much can we realistically be asking of people, and I think you're exactly right, man. It, it's not wrong of us to really be asking a lot. So that's what we did in the training program. In terms of spacing, we didn't have room to take 459 people, and really I don't think we could have formed them the way we were hoping to. So we, we brought in a little over 200 people, and, and now, just two weeks ago, we, we finished. We finished our first year with almost 200 people. Some people moved and had life situations, so, so uh, they, they weren't able to, to really finish with us. 
but we're just in a season really of thanking God about what he Absolutely. did. It was really a sweet season. And here's here's really what I want to emphasize. I mean, these are men and women who've been memorizing scripture. They've spent a lot of time in the Bible. They've spent a lot of time reading. They're in cohorts where yeah. they're talking about theology and they're learning to articulate things. And and here's what I what I really was trying to emphasize to, to them at the end of the training program and that I would uh that that, uh, that I'm just excited about is that our students in the training program don't graduate and finish. Yeah. Rather, they're commissioned back into the local church. We want to train the people we're sending and send the people we're training. So anybody that we're giving these kinds of resources to, this kind of time and energy to, we're going to expect a lot from after they're done. These are the people that I want serving in Kids Village and Little Village and on the parking team and leading home groups and serving the local church because now they've been given this responsibility of being equipped theologically, and and, in, and now I'm expecting that they go make disciples of yeah, Jesus absolutely. Christ. So absolutely. the goal isn't, hey, everybody come to the training program. I mean, yes, the more the merrier, we're wanting more. But I'm already hearing stories of, hey, JT, I'm taking what I've learned, and I'm teaching it to my husband. Or I'm taking what I've learned, and I'm now teaching it to my kids. My home group's going through a similar curriculum. And that's really the burden that I have there is that they're taking this, and they feel sent out from the training program to go teach others. Yeah, I'm excited just to see the, the second uh, your sophomore season, so to speak, launched here in August. And uh, I do want to point just our members to the fact that uh, if you have questions or are looking to get more involved in the Institute at any level, whether that's classes, forums, a training program, whatever it may be, all of that information is on the website. There's a link right at the top for the for the Institute to encourage people to go check that out. At some level, they're hearing about this regularly and yeah. routinely in the life of what we do. But um, I'm excited just to see this grow perhaps numerically it it probably will but more more so what our hope and our aim is is for this to grow in richness and depth yeah, so amen. that our people are more formed do know their part in the story do rightly understand and able to articulate what it is they believe so that they may be better equipped to make disciples. And so that's our hope. Now I want to turn the conversation and introduce Dr. James K A Smith to our time together. going to be joined today by James K.A. Smith. Uh, Dr. Smith is an author and professor of philosophy at Calvin College. He's written several books, uh, recently Letters to a Young Calvinist, Desiring the Kingdom, Imagining the Kingdom, and one of my favorites, How Not to Be Secular. Today we're going to be talking about his most recent book, You Are What You Love. So looking forward to jumping into this conversation and welcome to the show, Dr. Smith. It's great to talk to you guys. Thanks so much. Yeah, we're glad you're on. Uh, we do want to talk uh, about your most recent book, You Are What You Love, which I've, I've, I'm in the middle of. I'm really enjoying the book. I know these guys have both finished it. But if we could just start with the basic concept, the basic thesis behind what's driving this book. And so really at the heart of it is this understanding that humans are primarily, and you use the imagery of not brains on a stick, but primarily worshipers. And so not thinkers per se. Um, could you just begin to talk through that, begin to outline a little bit of the thesis before we jump into some questions? Yeah, I think my concern has been that in in really surprising ways, even in very in anti-intellectual contexts, I'm always struck by how much we still overestimate the role of thinking in what shapes our living, our doing, our behavior, 
and um, I, and I think that has has also been true in the church. I, I think we got hoodwinked a little bit in modernity into assuming that human beings are these kinds of cogitation machines, right? Like we're thinking things, and uh, we assume that all of our action and behavior is really the outcome of kind of intellectual cognitive processes, and therefore. As a result, we've also tended to think about discipleship as primarily intellectual input of beliefs and ideas and Bible verses and so on. Um, and my concern is is not that thinking is unimportant. It's just that I don't think it's as important as we sometimes realize. Or to put it now the other way, I think we underestimate how much our living, our doing, our being is shaped not so much by what we know or by what we think or what we believe, but actually by what we want, by what we love, by what we crave and long for. And so the, to say that human beings are worshiping creatures is really the flip side of saying that we are lovers, that we are kind of desi- we're defined by our desires. Because uh, there's a link here, it's a link I learned from St. Augustine, that really what you love and what you worship are kind of inextricably bound up with one another. On the one hand, what you love is what you give yourself over to, it's what you devote yourself to, it's what you consider worth your attention, um, and, and therefore you worship it in a sense. But also the flip side is that what you give yourself over to, what you devote yourself to, what you worship, shapes and trains your loves. Um, and sometimes in ways that almost bypass the mind. So I, I'm just trying to invite people to almost kind of expand the purview of how they look at human beings and realize we're not just these brains on a stick, that God has created us as these holistic creatures, and that really the center of gravity of the human person is located in the heart, which is the seat of our most deepest fundamental loves. Does that does that help sketch it a little bit? Yeah, I think it's it's amazing. Can you can you chat a little bit about liturgies and how that comes into play? I'm asking because yeah. I think... So the reason, um, and some people obviously will find that word a bit of a sort of hang-up, because liturgy sounds like a really churchy word, or it sounds like a really religious word, but I'm really just trying to sort of revitalize the term, redeem the term, uh, because a a liturgy for me is a love-shaping practice. So if you think of liturgies are rituals that aren't just something that you do, they do something to you. They... they, um, are really, at a fundamental level, training you to love something as ultimate. Liturgies are those kinds of rituals and practices and rhythms and routines that, again, aren't just something that you do. They are doing something to you in the sense that they are actually kind of aiming your heart right. to, in a certain direction. They're, they're really teaching you what to worship. And, and a lot of what my concern is, is I think a, a, liturgies are not restricted in that sense to churches. <laughs> if, if liturgies are love-shaping practices, then in fact what we need to realize is that there are liturgies everywhere, right? That there are, 
it, it should give us new eyes, new critical lenses to look at our cultural immersion and realize the extent to which things that I thought were just banal, benign, you know, things that I do are actually doing something to me. And what they might be doing is training me to love the wrong things in the wrong way. Okay, let me let me kind of flesh this out a little bit. Um, so Matt and I are actually walking through this book uh, with, a, with a group of guys, a, a reading group that we're a part of. And in this group is a mixture of Christian, non-Christian, mature Christian, um, nominal Christian, yeah, maybe a best, sure not quite is. sure what that, yeah. So it, it, it's yeah. a it's a range of, of guys in this group. And Fantastic. Yeah, it's awesome. It's been great. And so the concept was really somewhat riveting, somewhat for all of us, and certainly for a lot of the guys in this group. And one of the responses that came back was, um, if I am primarily a uh, a heart person, but I'm called in, – in order for me to think through these liturgies and these rival liturgies and the cultural liturgies, I'm actually having to use my brain on a stick to think through what those rival liturgies are, what the liturgies are that are affecting me. And so where does the, the kind of critical thinking come into play as it relates to um, the love-shaping practice? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a great question. It's an important question. Um, Think of it this way. So when I kind of resist the sort of uh, top-heavy, brain-on-a-stick, thinking-thing picture of the human person, that's not the same as rejecting thinking as unimportant. It's rather rejecting this kind of stunted, limited view that assumes that everything I do is the outcome of cognitive processes. If you sort of zoom out, right, if you kind of widen the purview and now you have this more holistic view of who we are that realizes that in some ways the center of gravity of our lives is located in this level of our affections, of our loves, of our longings, that doesn't, um, that's not instead of thinking, it's actually um, wedded to and is, is almost like the seat for our thinking. So, so the way I imagine it is we do think. Obviously, we are made to think um, God created us with minds to use. And what's, what's, what's happening in the sort of exercise you're describing is this, let's call it a, a sort of feedback loop, where what happens is we engage in intellectual reflection to look at what we are doing in our kind of everyday immersion in practices precisely to help us become aware of how things might be forming us that we wouldn't have been aware of before. Now, the thing is, though, um, that's crucial. It's catalytic. It it can be the jump start uh, to kind of turning, uh, uh, repenting, you might even say, right, to to commit myself to different liturgies, to, to reformative practices. But the thing is, the thinking and critical reflection becomes the impetus now for me to dive into new intentional reformative practices. I can't think my way into new loves. I can, I can by thinking, become aware that I need new loves in my life, um, but what, I, what the thinking will do is propel me into communities of practice and, and spiritual disciplines that should reform my 
heart habits, so to speak. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it's actually really it's, helpful. It, yeah, yeah, I loved that last sentence. Yeah, the the piece about just yeah, yeah because in a way, otherwise yeah. you end up with this ironic situation where I've written this whole book that obviously communicates to people's minds while while <laughs> right. articulating that's, a critique that's the question. of why you're not just thinking things, right? I've been dying so to I ask don't, that I don't question. think that that's a performative contradiction. Right. I think that it is, um, it, it's almost like reading the book is situated in that feedback loop. Um, it's, it's interesting. I've, in various venues, um, I keep running into people who talk about uh, the experience, for example, of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is also really about, in some ways, reforming habits, right? Reforming hunger hmm. and wants and tastes. And, and one of the common cliches of, that's kind of repeated in AA meetings is, your best thinking got you here, right? Which is, the point is, and thinking isn't going to be enough to get you out of where you are. What you need to do now is, okay, you've thought about this enough that you realize you need to come to the meetings. That's right. Now, do the, the practices, the rhythms, the routines, uh, and be convinced of that, but realize there's always more going on in the liturgies than what you're thinking about. So, so as uh, the three of us here and many of the listeners were, were either engaged in ministry or these are, these are lay men and women who are engaged in, in the task of Christian discipleship. So really what you're encouraging us to do and to think about is to, and to, re- is to recognize uh, as we're making Christian disciples, we shouldn't just be asking the question, what do you think? But probably the primary question should be, what do you love? And if that's the case, how can churches, pastors, men and women who are trying to make disciples of Christ— how does the church reorient and reform us to think about answering the question, what do you love? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, we're always working on multiple fronts, but you can imagine how um, that's the kind of question that can be communicated intellectually, right? So there is a role and there is a place for the church's message, so to speak, to be one that actually invites people to think about a question they haven't thought about before, right? So that our evangelism and our preaching doesn't just look like challenging what people believe, mm-hmm. but actually in this kind of prophetic mode is, is asking them to ask themselves, it's not just what do I believe, but it's what do I want, right? right what do exactly. I love? <laughs> and and um, the, the discomfort that comes from realizing that I might not love what I think sometimes, right? That's, that, to me, is the gap of sanctification. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, you know, our preaching, the, the, the communication of the Church can do that. But then a lot of what I'm trying to argue in You Are What You Love is that the Church should also now be a community of practice, right? Exactly. A, a sort That's of... Good. Um, an incubator of spiritual disciplines that are really reformative liturgies. So that when you are invited into the body of Christ, you're not just invited into a lecture hall where we're going to give you intellectual information to stimulate your thinking about these things. You're really being invited into the body of Christ, which is defined by the rhythms and routines, and if it's not a bad word, rituals mm-hmm. um, of the Spirit that are the place where you kind of learn how to love again, right? You relearn how to love what God has made you for. So that's why it's not—I um, think it, it, my hope, actually, 
is that it, it sort of revitalizes ecclesiology. Because what it means is, is that the church as this Christ-centered, spirited community of practice is the way that Christ wants to sanctify us. Um, and, and I think that is a little more integral sometimes than the view of the church that is sort of inherited in, in a more typical evangelicalism. That might be a little bit unfair, but I, I don't know if that makes sense. I, I think it does. It, do, do you then believe that there is a prototype for the gathering? Because every church has a liturgy, but um, you, you would argue that there are better, more appropriate liturgies than others, right? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So um, I think, yeah, I, I, it's interesting to frame that as the prototype question. I think w- what I'm trying to suggest is that there is um, there, there's a paradigm here. There, there is kind of an exemplar. There, is, um, there are gifts to be found in the biblical and Christian tradition that, that give us um, a repertoire for what worship should look like if we want it to be formative and reformative in this most significant sense. I'm I'm trying to hedge, (laughs) I'm trying to state this carefully because I don't want this to sound like uh, it's not an apologetic for a particular denomination. Instead, I think of it this way. Um, the, The source and resource for thinking about worship is scripture above all. So in some ways that means looking to Israel's worship, and that, that looks, means looking at the New Testament. But then I also take really seriously Jesus' promise that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. And because of that, I believe that the Spirit has been leading and guiding the body of Christ across the centuries of history. Sure. And so that what has happened is there has been this kind of accrued wisdom of the people of God who have discerned a kind of narrative plot that characterizes biblical formative worship, it, that, that mode and model is not owned by Rome, it's yeah. not owned by Canterbury, it's not owned by Constantinople. It is, a, in the best sense of the word, a Catholic inheritance. It's a universal inheritance of the church. And, and what I'm, I guess, a big passion of mine is that I think the future of the church in the 21st century will find treasure troves of wisdom about worship by retrieving this ancient biblical tradition. Is that, I, but maybe I'm being too abstract. No, it is. No, it's helpful. And, and you mentioned this, you know, you, you said you're not making an apology for any particular denomination, but let, let me invite you into our context so we're a okay. Southern Baptist church, you know, where our tradition and liturgy spans a whopping 200 years. And um, <laughs> how, would you, how would you encourage us, uh, and, and where every church has autonomy, uh, how would you encourage us to consider what you're arguing for as, as, as a, what I would say is a, maybe a better way is what you're, is that fair to say? I mean, um, yeah, so I want to I wanna make sure that I, it doesn't sound like I'm sort of pronouncing on no, no, uh, no. things. But so m- my concern is that, um, yes, I, I feel like especially, and, and I, I, I come from Christian traditions that, that have, like I, I grew out of Christian traditions that I think had a similar history. And I think my, um, the burden of my conviction 
is that in some ways those Christian traditions that really emerged in the middle of modernity, right? Like, in, you know, we're talking, you know, years and years after the Protestant Reformation, right in, in many ways also birthed in kind of the heart of Enlightenment era. Um, we might not realize the extent to which they themselves completely unwittingly and implicitly bought into a kind of thinking thingism in the way that they, they sort of set up what worship looks like. And um, on top of that, they're often characterized by what we call a primitivism, right, where they think, okay, well, we're just doing what the New Testament did, right? They sort of leapfrog across these centuries. And what I'm suggesting is, yeah, I, I think those kinds of Christian traditions, Protestant traditions, can nonetheless find resources for thinking about worship um, uh, in the ancient church, in the medieval church, and in the Reformation churches that, um, yeah, it bequeaths to us a, a really, I think, powerful um, narrative approach to worship uh, that, that the that the wider body of Christ has has inherited. I mean, I suppose if, if you wanted to hold up a model of that, one model of it would be what you would see in Anglican churches, right? So think of the kind of, um, uh, there's a narrative arc to what worship looks like in right. those contexts. And one of the things that's interesting is the Spirit is forming you in those contexts well beyond the sermon. Right, I'm I'm all I'm all for sermons. I don't want to, I don't want pastors to think I'm opposed to sermons. But it's actually, in a sense, it's expanding where you think the spirit is operative and transforming us. And um, in many ways, I, I mean, I think one symptom of where we're at in thinking about worship right now is that in many many evangelical contexts, as soon as I say the word worship, most people think of what? Would you guess? Singing. Yeah, they think music. Right, so they don't even think of the sermon as it's like first we worship and then we listen to a sermon. And to me, that's just a, a barometer to realize how how deep the misunderstanding of worship is. Right? When mm -hmm. I say worship, I mean everything that the body of Christ does, from the call to worship to the benediction at the end with the Lord's table and the Word of God in the heart of that. The sacrament of baptism is a, as a central ritual and practice that shapes us. So, yeah, it's, I, I, I'm trying to um, invite Protestant evangelicals to realize that they can, um, in a way, avail themselves of and apprentice themselves to this historic biblical tradition without having to uh, swim the Tiber, as we say, right? It, it, this, right. Isn't, this isn't sacrificing our Protestantism to inherit this. In fact, I think if many of us, if we went to John Calvin's uh, um, church in Geneva, would be surprised at the kind of, quote-unquote, liturgical rhythms that he still would have very much affirmed as a Reformed Protestant uh, uh, worship leader. You know? Sure. Let me let me ask you this. Just uh, it's somewhat of a transition type question here, but in our church context today, and, and I realize churches have a variety of different contexts, but what would you say to churches who are using some modern technologies, modern modern tools that God has given us in this season and this time for such a time as this, maybe in in the gathering? So I'm talking about 
lights, and I'm talking about uh, amplification and screens and all of these things that may, even video, you, you know, and, and the argument could be made that these are aiding the furtherance of the gospel. These are aiding in some way and maybe even leveraging what is familiar for the sake of the gospel. And I wonder, are you saying, are we just kind of sliding and slipping into these rival liturgies and we need to confront them more aggressively? Or is this something where we need to leverage because we have freedom to do that? No, it's a great question. I think um, uh, maybe the first thing to say is I, I don't want to... I don't want my argument to sound like it's traditional versus contemporary. And so, yeah, there's, there's absolutely nothing that precludes the thoughtful um, incorporation of technologies and innovations. There's, there's no worship that isn't already availing itself of technology. A hymn book is a technology, right? right? So it's, it's not whether you use, say, technology in worship, it's how. And um, I think... The, the way to think about this is to, first of all, just help people to realize that form, um, right, the kind of um, the rhythm and repertoire of the practices that we do is not neutral. So, for example, if I effectively um, sort of wheel in the technological and uh, the, the technology and repertoire of the rock concert, as, as a form to now communicate the gospel, you just have to realize that that form is already loaded in certain ways to train you how to relate to the world. That's right. And so it's not a neutral sort of container. It, it's, it comes kind of primed and loaded. And so in, in those contexts, maybe I have learned to be primarily a passive consumer who is there to be made happy. And, it, and if the form itself kind of comes loaded with that, then all of the sort of tacit signals that this form is sending, when you bring it into now the church's worship, even though the content and message might be gospel-centered, the practice itself is actually saying something else to my gut, right? And so now you've got this kind of cognitive dissonance, and, and the, in the worst-case scenario, what happens is the, the practices actually trump the message, right? And now what happens is Jesus just gets domesticated as one more consumer good who should make me happy. That, that's a concern. If, if now we think critically and... Um, prophetically about how we absorb contemporary technologies, repertoires, and so on. I don't think it precludes them. I just think it means we'll bring different criteria to what we think looks like a faithful extension of the worship, of the church's worship. And um, uh, in some ways, I think the church has kind of lived a little bit too easily with a form-content distinction and decided, well, as long as the content is gospel, the form doesn't matter. And I just think that that underestimates this kind of liturgical power of cultural practice. That's really good. Yeah, so let me ask a, a quick question. Quite a few of the people that will be listening to this are ministry leaders, but then probably a, a greater majority are just men and women who love Jesus and are growing in their faith or seeking to. Can, can you speak a little bit about um, maybe how do liturgies play themselves out, Christian liturgies can play themselves out in our homes? 
Yeah, uh, this is um, this is something I really want. It's probably my favorite chapter in the book was thinking about kind of household yeah. rhythms because obviously I, I make a lot of claims about the centrality. I, I think the church that worship is the heart of discipleship. However, uh, you know, a couple of hours on a Sunday is not going to be enough. Uh, to really rival the the deformative power of cultural liturgies. And so if you start looking at the spaces where God can also be shaping us, obviously the home and the household is is one of those. And I think um, on the one hand that means the way we think about sort of curating faith in our homes should also go beyond... um, just making sure that the Bible is read and that information is absorbed by the family and by our children. And start thinking about how can we create sort of rhythms and, and liturgies that reflect the story of the gospel. In, in our family, uh, we've done that. The, this is, in fact, really the way into this whole adventure for us was years and years ago where our family was at a Presbyterian church that practiced um, Advent, right? The rhythms of Advent leading up to Christmas and the Advent candle as uh, an Advent wreath as as a way to organize supper time, dinner time devotions. It's really powerful because it comes with a story. There's something sort of tactile and visual about it. Kids love to... they. Well, they probably fight over who gets to light the candle, <laughs> um, but it, but it's something like it. I think that when you have um, spiritual disciplines that involve the body of touch and taste and smell and seeing, that is sort of seeping into children in ways that we don't realize. It's true. So However, true. I also think the critical side of this is families need to kind of take a a liturgical audit of their household and ask themselves, okay, if we look at the rhythms and rituals that we give ourselves over to, what are we functionally worshiping? Hmm, And and I I say this with some trepidation, but I think one kind of cultural liturgy that every family needs to ask themselves about is the liturgies of youth sport. Hmm. And and I'm not not this kind of geeky, I played football, love, love sports, but the overwhelming power of the kind of youth sport industry that creates these overwhelming repertoires and rituals that kind of, they can sort of overtake a family's life. There's no doubt. And and, um, what does it look like for Christians to cultivate a certain critical distance um, and and to give themselves over to Christ-centered rituals? Does Does that seem like a fair... Absolutely. Well, we're in yeah. Dallas, Texas, brother, and I can assure you that. <laughs> Let that me just be. say for the record, Friday Night Lights was the best television show ever. Really? <laughs> All right. That's strong. Fantastic. Strong. Yeah. Mark it down. Let me ask you this just, just as we close here. Um, you, you may not know much about our context as a church, but we would, we would value uh, your admonition, your exhortation here. In, as, it, as it relates to your thesis, this book, You Are What You Love, is there something that you would – uh, push us to consider as a church, as leaders of this of this body. Would you push us? Would you encourage us? Exhort us? And we're here, ready to receive it as it relates to uh, our mission to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's a great. I, I wish I knew more about um, your context. I think I, I really appreciate the sort of the sensitivity that your questions are coming from. Says a lot. I, I think one of the things I've been telling um, friends and pastors um, lately is I think one of the best things that we can do as sort of 
gospel-centered evangelicals today is to cultivate ancient friendships. That is, I, I just think there is something spiritually renewing and powerful for the church today to realize that it's older than your youth pastor. You know what I mean? <laughs> and right. and uh, um, this finding the treasures of this ancient biblical tradition um, and and sort of diving into them, finding an ancient friend. For me, that ancient friend has been St. Augustine, right? For somebody else, it might be Ambrose. For somebody, it might be John Calvin or Martin Luther. But I think um, there's something about apprenticing ourselves to the history of what the Spirit has done in the Church over these millennia that gives us a healthy distance from our own kind of contemporary immersion. And and I also think it gives us hope, right? You, you realize sure. that... Uh, um, the church has been faithful, that Christ has, has been reigning and leading uh, in, in circumstances that are much more dire than ours. And, and I, I hope that would give us this posture of hopeful witness uh, to the world around us. Yeah, that's really good. I mean, one of the things uh, I've heard you say before is talking kind of about uh, cultivating these ancient friendships is when you read these these brothers and sisters from ages in the past, it can feel like there's a great distance between us and them. But actually, when, when you pick up, for example, Calvin's Institutes or Augustine's Confessions, you realize they're asking a lot of the same questions we are. You said once about Augustine, when we read the Confessions, it feels like he has read our mail, right? Like he's yeah. peering into right. our yeah, soul. Yeah, you know, that's what strikes me is that you, and you, and it's, it's a biblical sense, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Right. And, um, and, and yet you look at the kind of, wisdom that they had, say in Augustine, right, in the in the center of a fragmenting empire and all kinds of debates within the body of Christ, and you just see this this sort of Christ centered anchor that, that orients and, and stabilizes him. And so we we can learn a lot from that. And and I think the same is true of the body of Christ. I think that the ancient worship traditions uh this this is something I learned from my uh um in a way, spiritual teacher Robert Weber, to whom um, You Are What You Love is dedicated. He, mm-hmm. he said, he used to talk about what he called an ancient future faith. And, yeah. and in many ways, I think the future of Christian witness in a post-Christian age is going to look ancient. Uh, but that is also what will be the wake-up call uh, for a contemporary culture. That's great. Uh, Jamie, just real quickly, we want to thank you for your time. Yeah, thank yes, you very much. much. It's great to My have pleasure. you on the show and chat. And also want to just thank you for your work. A lot of us are benefiting from the work that you're doing, the books that you're writing. We're we're eager to continue to follow the projects uh, that are coming. So let us just say thank you. Keep working uh, for, for the sake of Christ and for the kingdom. Uh, we're benefiting from it. Thanks so much, guys. It's really encouraging to know the the work lands out there, and I uh, would value your prayers this summer. I'm working on Volume 3 of the Cultural Liturgies Project and have a, have a, a certain burden for it. I'm excited about it, but I uh, would really value prayers as I'm trying to finish that up. You have Got them. Him. Thanks, Dr. Smith. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Blessings. Moving into our Ask TVC, Casey Morrow writes in and asks this, I have an engaged friend living with and in sin with her fiancé. How do I lovingly let her know that this is not what believers do? Matt, 
So, you know, I think the thing that to always consider when you're having these kind of conversations is, is my hope, Casey, is that you've got a good relationship with this friend, that you have uh, walked with her in such a way that you know you, she care, or she knows you care about her. And, and then I have found in these spaces where there's going to be so much emotion and, and, and so much kind of maybe the, the possibility of this going bad that we want to just have a loving kind of let's look at this together. I'm concerned for you. Here's why I'm concerned. And then maybe the two of you sit down and, and, and talk through some texts together to, to look at God's heart for what marriage is, specifically why God gave us all the good gift of sex um, and, and how that actually works for us flourishing and our joy. Because really what's happened in this situation, God, God bless your friend, is, is she has chosen, maybe ignorantly, um, because what we found here at the village oftentimes is that there literally is um, a lack of what God is really up to in marriage and sex and how those things come together for um, the joy of the person and a picture of what God's done in Christ. And, and, and so really to have that conversation in such a way where now she's informed but doesn't feel judged by you um, it is the way to go. And so, again, I, I'm, I'm saying that believing or understanding that you've already got a good relationship with her that your relationship with her hasn't been you constantly trying to coach or pick apart her life or uh, to to create some burdens for her uh, that that maybe will now in this moment where she needs you most um, maybe maybe cost you some things. So so that that's how I would handle it. That's good, JT. I just want to uh, turn to you. Ask this question. Layla Porter sent in. She writes: To deny the deity of Christ is to completely reject the gospel. Right? Yeah. So. Put simply, yes. I mean, a denial of the of the person and work of Jesus Christ is a is a rejection of the gospel. Because, uh, and maybe maybe to help answer this question, we can just talk briefly about what the gospel actually is. I mean, it's what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. It's it's victory over Satan, sin, and death. And those things can't be accomplished uh, by a mere human being. It must be accomplished by God Himself. And that's why that's why the the beautiful confession about Jesus Christ being Lord is essential to the gospel, where we're saying uh, Jesus is God. He is man in this one person, and this could only have been accomplished by him. It's kind of the uniqueness of the Christian faith. And if you reject this, so many other doctrines then right. have to be rejected that, that are central to what yeah. it means to be a Christian. It's almost like if you reject this, uh, I think of like a Jenga analogy. You, you're pulling out the bottom foundation, all, all of the important blocks, everything else will crumble yeah. without the confession that Jesus is Lord. And on the, on the flip side of her question, to deny the humanity of Christ is also uh, to reject the gospel. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so in our confession about who Jesus is, we're saying he's fully God and fully man, yet one person. And any any rejection of any of those truths, uh, we lose uh, the essence of what the gospel is. Uh, this next third question is an important question. Michael Ahose asks the question that I, I get asked a lot, uh, how should we as New Testament believers apply Old Testament promises, specifically the promises that tend to deal with material prosperity? I assume he's asking about uh, like, if you do this, if you obey the covenant, I will give you blessings. And if you don't, I will give you curses. How are those relevant for us today as New Testament believers, uh, kind of as it relates to the ancient nation of Israel? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think it's one that uh, a lot of folks ask and maybe even are a bit confused by. Um, 
Well, first thing that I would want to say that those are real promises. They mattered, and and yeah. God made those promises to His people. And God also tells us that all of the promises of God are found in their ultimate fulfillment in His Son. Yeah. And so to understand how those Old Testament promises apply now to New Testament believers, we look to Christ, and we look to Christ who says, where Paul writes about Him in Ephesians chapter one, that that bound up in Christ are all the riches of all the heavenly blessings that are found in Him. And so all of all of that which was the new te- or the old testament was pointing to was this one that was finally and forever the summation of all of the promises of God. And so um that's that's how I would encourage Michael to think about that and uh in short I would say look to Christ. Yeah. He he is the ultimate one who was promised to us as our prosperity and our hope and our richness and our joy is found ultimately in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so I want to thank everybody for listening. If there's anything you heard us talk about on the show today that you'd like to know more about, you can find details on our website at thevillagechurch.net. You can look at the episode descriptions on our podcast show page. Our next episode, we're going to have Gloria Furman on talking about the gospel, motherhood, and her new book, Missional Motherhood. In the meantime, if you have questions, let us know on social media using the hashtag AskTVC. We'll try to answer a handful of those every episode. See you next time. God bless. Blessings.